Hi there, and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories, your insight into female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. I'm Akego Koye, and on the show today, I'll be chatting with Nokwazi Nzobe, founder and CEO Matoyana Business Solutions, a Johannesburg-based consulting firm. We talk about stumbling into entrepreneurship, going beyond consultancy to content creation. Her first book, The Small Business Handbook, is available in English and Itsi Zulu. We talk overcoming imposter syndrome and much more. Let's get into it. Hi, Nokwazi. Welcome to African Business Stories. Hi, Kegel. Thank you very much for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here. So you were born and raised in Durban, South Africa? Yes, yes, I was. For the benefit of our, our listeners who aren't familiar with South Africa, you know, when, when people talk about being raised in, in the township, what, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's very unique to South Africa. With apartheid, what happened is that they got people from the villages and basically took people from the villages to come and work in the cities to service, I would say, white business or white mines. And, and literally, um, the white government then created these communities that are called townships. Mm. So they, they, and that's why, even though you can Google the word township and, and we'll talk about, in, I guess, a general, let's say, English dictionary, it will say a township is like a village or whatever. In South Africa, it signifies um, a community that was specifically set up for Black Africans, for for Indians, and and also we also have a category in South Africa um, that's called coloured, which are the mixed race people because again because of apartheid. Um, that was the, I guess, the power of apartheid is, you know, divide and conquer and, and separate. So they created these specific communities and these communities are called um, townships. What was like life growing up in, in one of those townships? I mean, I think for me, um, it's what I knew. Until you travel and you see the rest of the world and you, you, you really kind of understand, wow, how unique our history is. And, and all these specific communities that were created. For me as well, as much as I lived in the township, I didn't necessarily grow up in the township per se. And, that, and the reason was is that, um, so kind of being born under apartheid, towards the end of apartheid, when it was uh, very violent and people were, were fighting. And, and I mean, I even remember when I was young, when the army came into into the townships to now control us, to control the blacks, because uh, there was a lot of uprising and so forth, M my parents sent all of us to boarding school, and it was a um, it was a Catholic boarding school, um, run by German nuns, okay. and and it was also quite unique in that time because it was actually one of the very few multiracial schools that existed. Um, and, um, and so I, I only went home every quarter. Um, so it was, I used to be a, I guess a, it was a boarding school. So yeah. Um, and we all went to boarding school, my family, especially when we were younger, because it was, I guess it was safer than us being in the township. And, 
and experiencing the violence that was happening at that time. Because as we were also transitioning out of apartheid, there was also then the clash between the ANC and the IFP. So there's a lot of violence. And for my parents, it was safer for us to be away in boarding school than to be living in, um, in the township. And I just, I mean, just to even just to point out, like my younger sister, I mean, my older sister, she didn't enjoy boarding school. So my parents eventually brought her back. And so um, there were, there used to be protests, like stay away, to stay away from going to work and stuff like that, you know. So my dad used to make her dress in, um, you know, civil, in, in like your normal day wear and hide her books underneath, you know, um, in the boots underneath stuff because she went also to um, a school outside of the township. Um, you know, and yeah. it would look like, okay, they're just driving somewhere, but she was actually driving to school. And if they had been caught, I mean, you're, you could have been burnt, you, you, know, you know, so yeah. it, it, it was very tricky kind of growing up in the township in, in the 80s. Um, and I think very different to what it is today. Wow. That's, thank you for that, that story and that, and that reminder of the risk that, that our parents take sometimes to, to give us the, the best education possible. Thank you for that. So, so you then went on to college. So, so where did you go to college and what did you study? Um, so I, I went to the University of, at the time, University of Natal. Today is known as University of KwaZulu-Natal, which was in Durban. And I studied a Bachelor of Science in Cell Biology. And um, my second major was in psychology. And then I, I had all these aspirations of, of then, you know, being a clinical psychology. And I was very interested in just neurobiology and, and so forth. And I went and did my, my honors degree at Wits University. So I managed to, well, I got a scholarship and um, so moved up to Johannesburg and, and and you know, I just remember for my thesis, I had to work in Baraguanet Hospital, which is the biggest hospital, government hospital, in I'd say Gauteng, and I actually think in the in the whole of the country. And and I was doing specific research on um, women with HIV, and um, and basically just testing their, well, looking at their locus of control, uh, women who have a HIV and HIV positive children and women mm -hmm. who have HIV and HIV negative children. And, if, you know, it was very interesting. But I think for me, it was um, quite an experience where I was really introduced to the trauma of um, what I'd say people from our communities have gone through. Because when you, when you hear the stories, a lot of the stories were stories of gender-based violence, of husbands not wanting to use protection. And if they said they wanted to use protection, they'd be like, why are you sleeping with somebody else? So you just, you know, I think for me at that young age, um, it, it, it was just eye-opening. And I think I realized that as much as I, uh, I wanted to become a clinical psychologist, I felt by the end of my degree that I was not ready. I felt like, you know, um, I, wouldn't, I would not be able to empathize in the way that I needed to in order to be the best psychologist that I could be. Um, and so that's when I kind of changed my mind and said, 
well, I'm not sure if I want to be a clinical psychologist anymore. And I'm not sure if I want to be a biologist. Well, the biologist was very clear. I think once I started spending, because you spent a lot of time in labs. So right. I used to compare myself to my friends. Um, you know, we used to be in lab until five, six in the evening. And, you know, those who did commerce or did drama, the arts, they were hanging out and having fun. So I was just like, if this is going to be the rest of my life, <laughs> I don't want to be doing this. Um, mm -hmm. So what was quite interesting is that um, we in South Africa, and I guess most of the world, um, a lot of companies come recruit on campus. And so since there was campus recruitment, I just started applying. And basically, I yeah, attended one of the Procter and Gamble graduate recruitment processes and 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 that's how I, I got into business. Yeah. So so you got into Procter and Gamble and, and I understand you were there for about what, five years? Yes, I was there just over five years. Five years. And you had so many different roles at Procter and Gamble. So can you talk to us a bit about what you were doing at Procter and Gamble and and more importantly, what that experience did for you? So Procter and Gamble was very interesting. So I mean um for me having been I think having studied science and biology and psychology I had no clue about the business world I did not know there was FMCG or whatever the only company I really knew of was Unilever because their their head offices are in Durban um and 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 their factories so a lot of people in our township worked for the Unilever factories mm -hmm. um and that's kind of what I knew about them and then I uh, you know Procter & Gamble I, I get recruited and I remember telling my friends and they were so excited, especially the ones who were who did um, BCom and marketing, a bachelor, of com a bachelor of Commerce. And so I was just like, what is this company? And I, rem I remember going online and like researching them. And then I was offered a role in logistics. And again, I had never heard of the word logistics. And I remember doing research. <laughs> I was just, I was just happy that I, I, I was recruited straight from university, and I think you know, again, looking at our history in South Africa, it was a big thing that you know, um, you got into university, and now you've got a job at a big multinational. So it was a big, big thing. I even remember um, the letter of acceptance and um, on the dining room table at home, and how excited my mom and my brother were for me, um, and so. You know, getting into Procter & Gamble and getting into this role called logistics, and I really had no clue. Um, but also for me, what was quite interesting is that I came in at a, at a, um, a manager one level in, in logistics. And logistics was quite interesting, quite different in terms of the levels that people maybe were recruited in in other departments. Um, people kind of came in more at an admin level and kind of kind of went up the ladder. I came in straight from university at a level one. Um, and also what was quite interesting, you know, for me, it's quite important to always touch about race when you talk about in, specifically in South Africa, because yeah. race is just a big determinant of your career and the environment and how you experience life over here. And um, so for me, entering PNG was great and an amazing company, but also there were dynamics in my department around race. Um, you know, there, there hadn't been a black person at that level in that department, maybe in other departments. Mm. So I, I, I just, I remember it was the first time in my life where I actually really started experiencing race and race issues.
even though I grew up in apartheid South Africa, and, and that's the interesting thing. I think um, my primary and high school, even though I went to predominantly white schools, so my, I, I, I mean, I didn't touch on this, but high school, I, I got a... Um, I got a scholarship into a prestigious, you know, private school, and there were only two black kids in my in my class. But somehow, because of the environment, and you know, and both her and I were academic, um, we got academic scholarships. So you know, there was something about the environment that protected us. Right. And um, but there was something about going into work. And I remember my boss, who at the time was Egyptian, and he just didn't get the South African dynamics. He used to be very honest with me. He used to be like, you can't let the ball drop. You need to work harder. I remember being given more, more work, more assignments. Um, you know, I, I was given um, the project to, to set up the standard operating processes for that whole department in my first year. And, and that should ideally be given to someone who's worked a while because they should know the, the standard operating procedures. So I had that on top of my job. And then also just me be, being who I was, I was involved in like employment equity committee and all these other things. I loved the company. The culture was great. But the, the way, I guess, yeah, the way I came into this department had a specific role to play. But what it did for me, and this is the power of what it did for me, is that it exposed me to, to so many things. Um, and so because of all the, those additional responsibilities, I was able to showcase my capabilities. Right. I learned to speak up for myself quite quickly. And then when I went into new roles, I was able to say to my boss, oh, I don't like this role or oh, I prefer to do this, you know, because I just had to be confident in order to survive in that department. Mm. And so for me, it, it was great because I learned the systems of the company. I had to meet everybody in the organization when I had to do those SOPs. So I got to network across and upwards. Um, and then um, eventually I was moved to a new role, which is called demand forecasting. Um, and there I got to, to really interact with the commercial team and the, and the GM and the VP. And then from, from those roles, um, I guess, you know, my boss saw talent in me. And when PNG acquired Walla, I was part of the integration team. So that gave me a lot of exposure because it was how do we now um, integrate two companies? And that gave me great exposure. And then when PNG acquired Gillette, I was also then the lead for the logistics and supply chain department for Sub-Saharan Africa. And just to give you context there, I think I was probably about 26, 26, 27 when I had that role. I think what it did for me, it gave me a taste of entrepreneurship, but slightly in a slightly different way, because I felt like all the roles I got put in were either roles that didn't exist or roles that were, you know, because of the integrations, you know, um, it was a very different environment compared to the operate the, the standard operating of the business. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, PNG was just a great experience in that sense. Is that I got exposure. I worked with amazingly smart people. Um, I got to travel. Um, and not just travel um, across the continent, but also travel the world. And I think mm. to to even go back to my first role in logistics, as much as I didn't like it at the time, today as an entrepreneur, I think it's a blessing in disguise because it's it's a department that people undervalue, but it's a department that if it doesn't work, your business operations don't work. That's awesome. So so you then moved to to Nokia. Yes. 
and also moved countries. Yes. So talk to us about that. So five and a half years at Procter & Gamble and, um, and then I kind of got itchy feet. Hmm. Um, and, and it was the first time ever that I actually put my CV out. Um, and I think for me, the, um, the key thing at the time, being very ambitious, I had, very, I had a clear goal that I wanted to be a GM. So I was very clear that I'm not a specialist, I'm a, I'm, I'm a general manager. And I wanted, you know, um, a, I won't say a quick route, but a, a, a company that had a clear route to general management. And I also felt that I wanted to be in a different industry. So I'd spent five and a half years in FMCG. So, you know, I just said, wherever I go to afterwards, it cannot be another FMCG company. And so when Nokia came along, um, the initial offer was for a, a role that I had no interest in. So initially I declined it and they called me back and they were like, we'd like to speak to you. We're really fascinated by your CV. Okay. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is that, you know, the specific manager at the time, um, he was really fascinated in my story and me as an individual. And I remember him saying, I don't have a role for you. I agree that this role that we're looking for is not the role for you, but I want you to work for me. So we will, wow. he's like, I'll find a role for you and I'll call you back. And six months later, I got a call and he was just like, we're opening a new department, which was like a demand forecasting, but a financial demand forecasting. Um, and I went and I interviewed for that and, and I got the role. And it was based in South Africa, um, but it was a great role as well because I basically had to interact with all the general managers from all the regions uh, on the continent and all the heads of sales. And basically, I would kind of consolidate and do the forecasting for Africa. And then I used to be the one reporting, reporting back to right. global in terms of how we're performing. I did quite well in that role. And within nine months, I was promoted to um, head business controller, but it's also a finance and control role. And that's when I moved to Nairobi. Right. My career was so fast track. So I got that role to give you context. I was 28, 20, 29. Mm. And on average, I was 10 years younger than the than my peers in the lead team. Um, and, and so I think for me, it, it was a great role. I did well um, within the first year, I got awards for like um, current best practice in terms of in internal control processes and putting things in place. But I think halfway through, I really started questioning, is this what I wanna do? Because I got into, I would say, top management so quickly and so young and I mm. felt like I didn't I didn't have a coach I didn't have a mentor I mean my then boss the one who hired me he he was amazing so he was my career sponsor and he was mm. like if you work hard you, you know you can get to general management but right. it was just something in me that just I wasn't happy I was working mm. hard I was meeting the targets and but there was just this void and this gap so what did you do so what i started doing is that i didn't start asking myself you know is there something else mm. you know at the time i was very much a typical this is my plan this is my goal and this is where i'm going to i'd never really thought about anything else mm. um and so i just thought let me take a time out but for me time out was going back to school right um and i'd always 
because I studied science and, and psychology and now I was in a finance role, I always had like this imposter syndrome of, um, you know, because people would always ask, what did you study? And then they'd be like, but how, how can you be finance, um, head of finance and, and you studied psychology, you know? So I always had that. So I thought, let me do my MBA. Yeah. And, and, and literally that's how I decided to go do an MBA, um, to take a break. And, and, and the logic at the time was take a break and also give myself the confidence to, to, you know, next time somebody asked me this question, I'd say, well, I have a business degree as well, which is why I can do this role. Um, and that's how I, I decided to, to do my MBA. Um, and I did it in, in the US um, and specifically because I was very clear that I wanted to have an international experience and continue to grow my international network. Um, so I was very, very choiceful of that. Um, the university I went to was called HALT. Mm -hmm. um, it was the former Arthur D. Little School of Business and I think was acquired by a Swedish company. What was interesting is that it wasn't your traditional B school at the time. Mm -hmm. So I know from Africa, everybody was like, why don't you apply to an Ivy League? Why don't you? And I was just like, I don't want to be at school for two years. I just want one year out and to then go back into corporate. Um, I just want a year to think. And that's how I, I remember just calling my boss and saying that I think I need a timeout. And they agreed um, to allow me to go on sabbatical. And, um, and then I left and I moved to the U.S. So what was living in the U.S. like? What was that whole experience like for you? It, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I think the reason why I, I did, one, I think just Massachusetts is, it's, it's just known. It's, 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 um, it's full of universities and it's just suitable for, for being a student. Um, so, and I think the other thing as well is that because it was just this new environment and I think for me being away from home, so it's just to give you an example, I've always been responsible. So I was, I was that child <laughs> that was a head girl. Um, you know, I got a job part-time when I was at home, you know, I always did everything right and in the right way. And it was the first time I actually felt I could be myself like I could be something else and not the super responsible yeah. Nkwazi. And I think the U.S. allows you to do that because it just has the environment um, that allows you to have fun but also study at the same time. Um, so in that sense, I, I, I really enjoyed being there. So you had this one year to think while you were experiencing a new culture and, you know, the dynamics of, of the U.S., and, and how did your thinking go? Oh, it was interesting. So I think for me, what the U.S. did for me is that it's entrepreneurial. Like, you know, like I remember the Cheesecake Factory and I'm seeing all these businesses where I'm like, huh? So people are like creating like franchises of like, like the weirdest things well, in my head. And it just kind of exposed me to just creative the, the culture is. Um, and so when I came back home, um, I just couldn't get myself to go back to work. Yeah. So, um, I mean, and just to point out the context at the time is when Nokia was going through its downhill and it was being acquired by Microsoft. Um, 
you know, so I remember my boss was just like, look, we're going through another restructure, just wait a bit. And once we have a role for you, you know, you can, um, you'll come back. And so that was great because I was on sabbatical and it just gave me time to think. And so um, I, I decided to volunteer during that time. And I volunteered for a program that was supporting women in business and, and really just gave me the time to volunteer and explore. And I remember the first time my boss said, okay, he has a role for you. And I was just like, no, I can't have gone and done my MBA and, and seen the world and come back and do a role like that. But I think in my head, I still wasn't clear that I didn't want to go back to corporate. Right. And then he came back with another role and I, I declined it. Um, and then he came back with a third role, which I think would have been perfect from, from a, my, I'd say my career progression that I had planned pre my MBA. But what had happened in my volunteering stint is that um, people started started asking me if I consult and people encouraged me to turn what I was doing into a business. And I remember I got my first big contract with quite a big um, development agency that was doing research about entrepreneurship across the SADC region. And I remember my boss called me literally the day I was starting that consulting gig. And I said to him, you know what? I think I want to see where this is going to take me. Hmm. Um, so I, I think my sabbatical is over. I think I, I'm, I'm officially resigning wow. and I want to explore this entrepreneurship thing. And I think that's what doing my MBA in the US did is that it opened me up to the possibility of you creating your own opportunities. Right. Coming from apartheid to Africa, being black, the big thing was get educated, go to university and go get a job. Mm. And if you've got a job, you know, climb up the ladder and you've got that status. And I think the U.S. kind of opened up my mind and exposed me to, sh- to, to so much. And I think coming back, I was just like, no, I'm, I'm thinking differently. I'm seeing things differently. And that's what it did for me. And I really believe if I had chosen to do my MBA in South Africa, I'd still be in corporate right. today. Yeah. Hmm. That's very interesting. So, so you kind of stumbled into entrepreneurship. Yeah. So how did you go about setting up? So you got this gig, you're doing this and you think, oh, wow, I'm, I'm actually an entrepreneur. So what was the formal process of, of setting up? So when I come back and I was still thinking about what I wanted to do and I've gone back home, I was just chilling and doing nothing. I think my family was very worried because the first time I think First time in, the whole, in their whole life, they'd seen me with no direction. And my mom, my mom said to me, go register a business. And I remember her taking me. In South Africa, we have um, centers that are government-led. It's a government agency called CEDA and a small enterprise development agency. And I remember my mom taking me there and her giving me 500 rand to register um, a business. And I chose the word, um, the name Matoyana. Um, so my mom's, um, I would say, she calls me Toyana. So as you know, Africans, we, we have family clan names. And Toyana is one of the clan names from my dad's side. And my dad passed away when I was young. Um, and so the name was quite special to me. So I was just like, you know, if I choose the word Toyana, um, I feel like, you know, my dad will be walking with me in the journey. Um, and the the name was already taken up, 
And and then my mom was just like, well, Ma Toyana, because Ma feminizes the name. And and that's how we got to the name Ma Toyana, and I registered the business. So as I was volunteering, I had this company that was registered, but was dormant in a sense. Okay. Um, and so when I, like, you know, when I first got this big contract, luckily I already had this, this business set up. Uh, well, the, the company registered. So right. it was really quite quick because I just had to quickly open up a business bank account, show them my documents. And, and literally that was the first invoice I really invoiced under the business. So, um, and that was pretty much how I started off. And this is where then my studies helped me because, um, you know, I did specialize in entrepreneurship and innovation in the U.S. And I chose a lot of entrepreneurial modules. Uh, but I did have the interest. Um, and so I started putting that into practice, um, just, you know, setting up a website, having social media presence. The other thing that I was very clear about is that, you know, in terms of my network, my network was all in corporate. I did not have a network in the space I'd entered in. Um, so for me, the, the volunteering gig became really critical because it was through um, Gibbs, so the Gordon Institute of Business Science, which is um, a business school here in South Africa. And it really has a strong business name. So um, I continued volunteering and then became a business coach for the entrepreneurial mm. programs. And what that did gave me the credibility. So um, that I wouldn't have had just as a lone young black girl saying, hey, I'm a consultant in this space. And also what happened over there is that um, a lot of the entrepreneurs who were part of their programs would then ask me afterwards to come and consult. And, and, and really that's how I slowly grew is that I volunteered a lot of those guys now became my clients and then they started referring me to people. And then I had the Gibbs name behind me in the sense that, you know, a lot of the programs I was um, volunteering for and mentoring on. So it gave me that credibility. Um, and that's where I started interacting with corporate clients because a lot of big ed programs so that's um that's when i started then getting exposure to to some corporate clients and and funny enough while doing research for another business i i went and i approached um procter gamble just because i still knew people there and i was like i'm doing this research i want to see but since you know you guys are corporate and i know you what advice would you give to a small business and i remember having this meeting and the person there was just like hey actually, we have this problem that we're trying to solve. And at the time, I was like, oh, I think this is what you can do. You know, and this is just now being from my experience, being in the entrepreneurial environment and understanding the landscape and the legislature. And the, and the lady was like, well, it sounds like you know what you're doing. Why don't you pitch for the gig? And I was like, it's not what I do. I, I just do kind of coaching and whatever and entrepreneurship. She's like, well, just, just, send us a proposal and I went and I wrote this proposal and and I re realized retrospect retrospectively I was pitching even against the business school that I was I was coaching on behalf and I got and I got the gig from from them that was my my first big corporate role I mean corporate client uh, and that's mm. how I just I think for me what makes it very different the whole stumbling in is that my business grew because of referral and also timing is so important in entrepreneurship. So 
you know, when I came back from the US, the um, the legislation was really about um, supporting entrepreneurs, and we have an act called Triple BE, so Black, uh, broad broad based Black economic empowerment. And part of it is, so really it's about um, addressing um, basically the inequalities that were caused by apartheid. Um, so a lot of it is what corporates can do internally, but also how can they support black businesses and how can they be more black entrepreneurs? And, and so that was what was happening at the time. So I feel like, you know, the business started at the right time. There were just a lot of opportunities. So I got the corporate roles. I had the business school that I continued, um, you know, be so they, it moved from volunteering to become an actual business mentor on their programs. And, and literally my business grew basically from meeting people in this environment. And, and, and a lot of it has been referral. I always say to people, 99% of the work that I have even today, seven years having mm. run this business, is referral. I actually have only succeeded at one pitch, and that was the first pitch. The rest <laughs> I have always failed at, but I always seem to get work, and it's been and it's come from my network. That is very interesting. You run this for seven years or so. You've been doing this for seven years, and then I, I understand that at some point you, you decided to pivot. Yes. Um, switch up your business model or uh, a little bit. So to, can you tell us a bit about that pivot? So um, so because I was really servicing what, and if I had to make it, um, use a terminology that's accessible to everybody, I was servicing incubators and accelerators. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, and so a lot of people for me to grow would say to me, why don't you start your own accelerator? And I was like, I don't see a need because there's so many. Um, and I'd just, you know, be just another player in the fray. And, and, but what it did for me, because, because I had, a, I, 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 I say, a plug-in model, and I, and I consulted to so many different organizations that were working with small businesses and entrepreneurs across, across just a range, I realized mm. there was a gap in local content. Really speaking to the local entrepreneur, and that's where I saw the opportunity to write the small business handbook. Um, and really, it, it was because people would say, "So now I've attended this program for twelve weeks, for six weeks, or whatever, and I've been taught all the business skills and how to run a business, but it's very different to when I implement. I wish I had the tools with me now that I can utilize now that I'm running my business." And right. that's where I saw the opportunity, and I wrote the book. Um, and what was interesting is just the interest that was garnered um, in terms of the people who bought the book. A lot, of the, a lot of the people who bought the book were the accelerators, were the incubators. There were people who were calling me and saying that, oh, we're using the book as a training manual. So it was quite interesting just to see how people were utilizing it. And, and for the first time, Akego, I just got to a point where I was just like, you know, I've done so much work in the seven years, but I, because I'm a consultant, I can't speak about it as my own work because you sign CAs, you're doing it. So even if you've created something from scratch for a client and they were just like, here's the problem and you've designed this whole thing, you can't speak about it as your own. And I I eventually got to a place where I was just like, actually, and the book made me see that because the book was the first thing, a product that I put out to market. 
And I actually, in a sense, felt like a real entrepreneur now because that was a product that I owned. Um, um, and so it, it, then I just saw the opportunity of creating content, not just for, initially it was for these accelerators, but South Africa, you know, we have the highest Gini coefficient in the world. We, we have a huge unemployment rate. Um, and I just realized there's a lot of people who are interested in starting small businesses, but can't attend an accelerator incubator because most of them as well are in the in Johannesburg, Durban and Cape Town and maybe two other smaller cities. But I'm like, there are a lot of people in small towns who actually need the skill, who need this knowledge. So how can I make this business knowledge accessible to more people? And that's when I started getting the ideas like creating content, just you know, create content and make it accessible. So it, it, it was almost a subconscious shift because I wasn't thinking about it from your typical, here's a business plan, business model, how do you monetize? I just started doing it. And, 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 and what's happened is that I started garnering a following and people were like, don't you want to create a podcast? Don't you want to do this? Don't you want to do that? So I had a lot of people throw things at me, but I was just like, I wasn't sure and being a I guess, typical analyst, um, you know, I, it, it took me a while, but now I kind of got the clarity that actually this is the right direction. It's the direction that I have been moving towards, but I've been moving towards it in an unstructured way. So for example, the small business handbook, it was initially a, a pitch I'd done for a client. And then we negotiated and they allowed me to own my IP and publish it and make it accessible. I have designed courses and online courses for, for, for other organizations. So I realized I'm already doing content creation, right. but I'm just doing it for other people. But now, how do I make it accessible? And that's really kind of is the thinking that I am at at the moment is that how do I make it accessible to just the broad public? But also, I think for me, when I look at South Africa and I think Africa in general, is that just because of colonization and our history, we, we're taught to go work, to go get jobs, and to go work for someone. I feel that our creative spirit is, is, is killed. Um, and when you look at the middle class, most of the middle class are working for these big organizations. You see a lot of survivalist entrepreneurship and people at that level, but really like um, I would say just what we see in the U.S. in terms of entrepreneurship, there's a huge opportunity. Um, and for me, I just have this thing of how can we get more people to realize that they can create and they can build their own, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a small business or something, that they can own and be able to earn their own money and not necessarily and i think specifically in south africa because unemployment is, is is just so high that they they learn the skills of starting something and making money themselves instead of graduating and searching for a job and and so that's kind of where you know now i'm slowly finding I guess my passion and just clarity where it's not just now I'm consulting on behalf of other businesses because I want to help and I want to make a difference. Now it's like, how do I do it 
and I do it in a way that I'm addressing the issues that I see in the country, but also addressing some of the issues that I experienced in the last seven years that I feel that, you know, other women and, and, and other black businesses and other small businesses shouldn't necessarily have to go through. And it's all about, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, so for me, that's really, um, you know, the direction um, I'm slowly moving and, and pivoting towards. What challenges have you faced as a business owner, as a female business owner in a country like South Africa? Could you just talk us through some of those challenges, what you've learned from them, how you've overcome those that you have overcome, you know? So, um, you know, for me, I would say the, the first challenge, and I'd say, you know... It's it's quite it's quite funny because I mean I'm I'm trying to think about it and I always this is where I always underestimate myself because I always say to myself oh my challenges aren't that big compared to other people but I think the there's one imposter syndrome I mean the space that I entered in consulting is it's largely male it's largely white and you know I I, I remember when I was starting off and and. A client had um, had asked me to run a specific workshop, and that's you know running it for a, a group of uh, it's a range of women running a range of businesses, standing over there, and a lady saying to me, "Are you old enough to be in front of us?" In the front, that was her question. As I was starting the day, the most disconcerting, and yeah. something that I'd never seen. My male counterparts been asked, you know, I had another situation where somebody said, how did you, how did this business school take you on? Like, like it was, you could see it was almost like incredulous. And I was just like, um, the, the normal way that they bring in consultants and facilitators and, you know, and he was just, and then he was like, which school did you go to? And it was just like, oh, is it online? Just, just you know, the constant having to, to almost like validate myself hmm. all the time. And that, at that, for me, I would say has been the biggest challenge. Um, and I think I still get it today. And, and, it's, and, you know, I always say it's the triple factor. You're black, you're female. And at the time, I say I was young. Um, so, um, for, for, for me, it, it, it was, it was, it was, I would say that those were my biggest challenges to, to almost have to say to people, um, I, I know my work, I'm good at it and I have every right to be here as much right. as you have the right to be here and I can deliver at the same level. Um, also pricing, being challenged on my pricing again, it goes back to, you know, so people will be like, um, but why, why are you charging this rate or, um, this is the rate we're offering you. And then you find out that other people are getting rates higher than you. So for me, those were really like, I would say the, the challenges that I faced and then my own challenges, right? So I'd say my own challenges is that also when I started off, my business model just did not make sense. Um, and so I, I, I knew within like 10 months in my business that if I don't re relook my business model, this business is going to fail. So I had to spend a lot of time rethinking my business model um, and, and really like 
looking, and this is how going to corporate clients, you know, that corporate client that I mentioned, they actually, in a sense, it was the universe pushing me into a new business model because they were like, no, you can still service small businesses, but we pay you because a lot of the small businesses that I serviced couldn't pay me. So I gave a lot of my services for free starting off and, and just interest is unsustainable. So that was a, another big challenge. And also then I'd say the other challenge is underpricing. The problem with underpricing is that you, it, it really takes a lot for you to increase your pricing. So when I had, you know, now I had a large group of clients and they were now used to this rate that I had been charging. And, you know, the more I got exposed and, and the more I saw how underpriced I was, very few clients were willing to, to, to change pricing. And I just realized that, you know, my pricing model, um, I'd really I'd undervalued myself. Um, and so just from a business side, those were some of the challenges just from maybe me not knowing how to price properly, knowing how to position myself properly that had an impact on the actual business model. Um, mm -hmm. And and you know, and that took some time in in terms of having to rework and and me kind of getting out of because then what ended up happening is that because I priced incorrectly, I I couldn't bring in as many resources as I would need for certain projects. So I end up working crazy over time in order to deliver for projects that if I'd priced correctly, I could have priced for more headcount. Um, in, in, in order to, to, to deliver. So I think for me, those were some of just the, the pains that I went through. Um, and I, I'd say the last one has been a solopreneur. Um, and, it's, and it's not that I necessarily wanted. I looked for business partners. I just I struggled to find people that were compatible. Um, I had a, you know, a failed partnership on another business I tried with someone else. Um, and so, you know, people always say, should you go solo or should you partner? And I, I was like, well, it's, it's almost a chicken egg situation. Just know that when you go solo, um, there's just, you, you, you do so much more. And it's so important that you, you collaborate. You have to really have the network to collaborate with a lot of people. Um, whereas when you have a partner, you have somebody who's just there with you, has your back, can focus on the stuff that, you know, um, you're not great at, you split the work and there's, you know, accountability on both sides. So, I, you know, I look back and I, I always say, if I had a business partner, I really think I would have been able to scale and move quicker than, than I did working by myself. Right. But on the flip side, is that not having a business partner and being, being the person that I am, is that I'm more driven by passion and purpose. So I have sometimes, well, not have sometimes, most of the time chosen more passion work than money work. So sometimes you look at work that's coming through and I would rather go for more of a piece of work that is more about solving a social issue versus going for a piece of work where I know that I'm going to get great money, but I feel like the, the purpose and passion return is, is, is not, is not going to come. And so because of that, I feel like I've had the freedom right. to work with um, people whose I guess my, my values are more aligned with. Yeah. So, so we're, we're in the midst of COVID and um, South Africa is one of the most affected countries on the continent. 
Um, so how are you in your business supporting um, SMEs and, and micro-businesses in, in South Africa? Um, so what was interesting is that in 2017, I did a pilot um, project where I was supporting micro-entrepreneurs in our poorest communities. So basically in the informal settlements and also in our townships. Um, so, so what had happened is that um, last year I managed to get sponsorship to run a program in an area called Deep Slut, which is one of the poorest communities in Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. um, and what was quite interesting is that when I designed it, um, I, you know, I'd seen, obviously we have the, dig the digital gap as well. Um, and one thing I noticed is that um, our poor communities, everybody has a cell phone, everybody has a smartphone. Right. And, I, and in my design of the program, I had thought to myself, how can we teach these women how to use their smartphones as a computer? And so basically we designed this program to have a whole lot of digital literacy. So now why am I mentioning this is that I didn't know that COVID was going to come. Hmm. So I have this program that weekly we, we are running a program to upskill these women and make their businesses sustainable and COVID hits. Right. And South Africa had one of the hardest lockdowns and which meant that we weren't seeing these women and we weren't supporting them. And um, we were able to get them to do online courses and I would transfer data to them. Um, and we get we got them to do a UNICEF course on how to run a, a, a play school. Um, we found some free online courses that we were encouraging them to 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 do. And, you know, and. And then also the way we had designed the program and something I'd learned from the 2017 pilot is that, you know, women from these communities face a lot of issues around gender-based violence and so forth. So um, I had designed the program to have a lot of personal development. I was like, if, I, if we really develop the individual and give them basically the, the skills, the soft skills that they need to overcome certain hardships, and what we found is that even though we, we taught them financial literacy and marketing and all of that, what made them survive COVID mm. were those soft skills. Wow. And, wow. And, and we had a community analyst. My, our community analyst was calling them every week, checking in on them. How are you doing? Where are you? We created a WhatsApp group. We created a Facebook group, um, you know, and just to keep them engaged. And, you know, here we are five months under lockdown and all of them are ready to restart their businesses. We gave them small capital just to be able to buy sanitizers and stuff like that. But even if we hadn't, those women are so resourceful. They were just like, we will find a way to restart. For me, what it actually showed me, and I think it's just for the rest of Africa, is that we are largely informal businesses. And sadly, these informal businesses don't have access to the support, the formal support that government had. So mm. governments had all these packages that were accessible to small businesses, business rescue plans, um, funding. And this particular group could not access because they didn't necessarily meet the compliance. And so then it, it got me thinking and I was like, as much as I've given all these women these skills, and some of them can become compliant, but some of them it will be really difficult. 
what they still need though, they have every right as inhabitants of this country, citizens of this country, running businesses to have access to all this formal support. Um, and so I've been inspired to, to look at a social innovation fund of, you know, of making it um, accessible to survivalist entrepreneurs, um, but tapping into this government funding. So me as an individual, as a black business, access this, this funding and then saying, this is how we're going to utilize it to support this sector oh. of um, of you know uh, of our economy that wouldn't formally meet the criterion because they I don't know don't have the certificate and they they're not tax compliance and and you know all of these things um, and so th that's what I'm looking at now in terms of how do I take this project and and spin it off into something else that's more sustainable and hopefully something that can also scale and support similar type businesses. Um, across the country and I'm hoping across the continent. That's excellent. That's excellent. So, so apart from this social innovation fund and, and as my final question, um, what, what's next for, for you, Nokwazia, and what's next for Matayana? So I think for me what's next is that I'm very clear on my vision and my vision is making knowledge accessible so, so people can create their own opportunities and solve their own problems. So because I'm quite clear about that, um, I'm just about how do I do that in a way that's impactful? Um, and so I'm, I'm continuing, I've almost, I've spun out my consulting and I'm, I'm more focused. I work with specific organizations um, and that's just me alone in the business. Um, and, and that has an element of coaching. And then Matoyana, is, is really going to become, you know, the social innovation fund, specifically targeting survivalist entrepreneurs and, in, and, I'm, and I'm focusing on play school industry, right, because there's a huge gap over there. Um, then I'm looking at content, like I said, the small business handbook, how do I make it into an online learning course? How do we make it accessible to more people? Also, it's really key for me, South Africa has 11, for, um, 11 official languages, but most business knowledge is in English. So how do we translate it and make it accessible to more people um, in our home languages? And then also looking at creating, this is a big area audacious goal. I'm in the process of working on it and hopefully, and I'm now doing something that I always say I shouldn't, but um, I want to start an online magazine specifically targeted at black women um, across the continent to get them to think of themselves as creators first. Um, and that's something mm -hmm. I'm working on and I'm ho hopefully I will be able to get it up and running. It's a huge risk. Um, yeah, and so so that's the direction that um, um, I'm taking. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nokwazi. This has been excellent. Thank you. That was Nokwazi Mzobe, founder and CEO, Matoyana Business Solutions. Her goal is to make knowledge accessible so people can create their own opportunities and solve their own problems. Nukwazi has gone beyond the business handbook she created and has a wealth of useful content and information for entrepreneurs on her website. So do check it out. Thank you so much for listening. People have asked how they can support us. Two things. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Google podcast apps. 
and leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Those two things will help us greatly. I'm Akego Koye, and you have been listening to African Business Stories.